This is a word fitly spoken. God's word is sufficient for spreading the reign of God the Lord by words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi, and our guest today, Reverend David Appled. We're talking about the fourfold distinction of man, wrapping up that discussion, a four-part series. And what are we here talking about tonight? Man in glory. But before we get to that, how's it going? It's going well, Willie. It's good to be back on with you guys. It's been a while since I've been on recording with you, been listening to the episodes. Good to catch up on everything. Good to be back on. How are things in Paducah? Things are going along. We're... um, the heat is upon us, so I'm I'm still not used to it, but so it goes. You'll get there. You'll get there. A few more mint juleps. Zellin, how are things in the great north? We're definitely in spring, finally. Oh, a balmy 52. Yeah, balmy 52. Actually, weirdly enough, it was like 90-some degrees in Fargo the other day. Well, that's not good. Yeah, I can't figure it out. We're already in fire warnings, so Yikes. it could be an entertaining summer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... I'm looking forward to the glory. Let's put it that way. So when we can get past all of these. Well, yeah, hopefully no fires. And hopefully if it's anything like previous years, or it's not like previous years, and you guys get some media coverage at least, you know? Yeah, exactly. People pay attention. <laughs> right. You have the fires up there. We have every once in a while, we'll have flood warnings. Paducah's right on the Ohio River. But Willie, you're, you're safe from natural disasters, aren't you? Right until you know, uh, you know the occasional tornado. Yeah, but yeah. we're just in that little pocket. I don't understand weather, and uh, it's not too bad. Usually, north and south of it gets it a lot worse. So, well, but, at any rate, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we've been talking about this distinction, man's fourfold state. So let's recap that a bit for those who are just now tuning in. What is the fourfold state of man? State one. Yeah, we're, we're talking about anthropology, biblical anthropology, that is the doctrine of man and man's condition. And so this is a helpful uh, distinction, a helpful way to see how man has changed and not changed. And we, we kind of lay the emphasis more on how he has not changed. We like to stress how human nature has, is not different now than it was, say, in biblical times. But we do also acknowledge that over the course of biblical revelation, there's a clear states that we might see in a person. And so you have man in Eden, in the original creation, Adam and Eve living in paradise with God. There they have this power to not sin, but also a power to sin, which is, you know, what happens uh, when the devil comes and tempts them. So that's the first state in Eden. You guys want to add anything in on that? No, good stuff. Good stuff. We'll come back to it a little more as we go throughout the... uh... And I think especially with this last one in glory, you can see, and we'll try to do, we'll try to bring this out a little bit, I'm sure, the comparison between Eden and the future glory, there's obviously some similarities, but also there is a a progress from Eden in the resurrection. All right. So stage two, state two, rather. Yeah, state two. So this is what is common to all of us now. None of us lived in Eden, but we all live in Adam. This is the condition we're all born in. And until Christ converts us, this is the state that we find ourselves in. So in the fall, man has lost that power not to sin and has only the power to sin. 
some people call it de- total depravity, sinful human nature, original sin. That's the condition we find ourselves in. What about the Christian then, state three? Through regeneration, uh, there is a, a new man that's created in here, and the power to sin is also now accompanied by the power not to sin. Uh, we, I think when we talked about it, we, we spoke about simul justus et peccator, so at the same time, sinner and saint here. We have to remember the Christian has the ability to not to sin. He has that back. It's weak, and he's still sorely tempted, but he does have that power again. So there is that that restoration that has occurred. And then that brings us to then the Christian in glory. Yeah. And so this is looking ahead to the future hope. And that uh, that future hope is that there will be a time when we don't just have these two powers in us, but the power to sin will finally be done away with, and we will have only the power not to sin, or the way that I think that, I think this is from St. Augustine, the power not to be able to sin, right? There's no longer a threat that we might lose something as there was for Adam. Right. Now, before we dive into the discussion on uh, man and glory, uh, we need to have a bit of a a preface. Uh, A lot of this is somewhat speculative. We don't know a lot of the particulars about what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, for example. And we want to avoid certain things, much as we are prone to create idols in our own minds, which would be a false understanding of who God is or or what God is. We are tempted to do the same thing with heaven and make it into just sort of a bacchanalia, right? Something, you know, it's just basically the, all the things that I like, that's heaven. And all the people that I like, that's heaven. And I don't really care about all the people I don't like so much. But all of these images in popular culture, and really, the Bible does give us a good picture of glory, but again, not the specifics. And we're going to get into that as we go on. We want to avoid that temptation there to simply set up an idol. There's a great movie. Here's a pop culture reference, or at least it used to be pop culture. Happy Gilmore. Uh, He goes to his happy place. And uh, sometimes when you hear people (laughs) talk about it, that's almost what you kind of think people think about heaven. It's like, you know, my heaven is this way and your heaven might be different. Well, no, we have a common, you know, there's a common goal that we're all pressing towards. And it's not going to be different for me than it is for you. Right. And it it just sort of becomes kind of some absurdist commentary. I remember reading a book uh, by a popular evangelical author who said, we don't know what heaven's like, but you never know. You could be golfing on Saturn or something. No, look, we, we don't know exactly, but I can assure you that you will not well, be doing know, that. Willie? How do you know? <laughs> how do you really know? Yes, you really we, know? we don't want it's to say too much, but we also don't want to not say anything at all, right? Because it isn't just this, that there is a picture that's presented for us and it's, it's good, right? It, it's the best. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's quite different from floating on clouds, and you know, like Bugs Bunny dies and he floats up, or a series of cream cheese commercials, yeah. that sort of thing. It's much more glorious than that. And really, for anyone who might be disappointed that heaven is not your ideal, or that heaven is not the part of your imagination, well, the good news is heaven is much more glorious than any man can imagine or dream. Yeah, we don't want to speculate about heaven, but we also want to acknowledge that the images that we do have are glorious. I mean, they are fantastic, and it is something worth pressing towards. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and that is the goal. I mean, it's not just to win heaven, but it's that it's that eternal fellowship with God, worshiping Him forever and serving Him forever uh, in His glory. And it's something again that man cannot fathom. But that's a discussion for another day, maybe even later in this podcast. I'll just say one more thing on on this. I was thinking about this recently. The tendency towards that kind of like mythical presentation of heaven, maybe that's not the right word, but it kind of makes heaven into a fairy tale. When it becomes a fairy tale, it loses its real comfort, right? Because it almost, it, when you hear people describe heaven as playing golf on Saturn, like, could you could you imagine someone who's suffering and you're trying to comfort them with the hope of heaven and you say, well, just wait one day we can be, we'll all be playing golf on Saturn. Like that, that so almost so right. obviously rings hollow uh, that it isn't something it's, it's, it's not the kind of thing that you would make sacrifices for, right? Like Zelwyn's talking about winning that goal. That very much is a comfort though, for people, something like that, you know, so-and-so is a bass fisherman. He dies. Well, old Fred, I'm sure he's up there yeah. fishing right now, listening to his Leonard Skinner mixtape and drinking <laughs> Schlitz. Just like he yeah. always loved. Forever and ever. <laughs> Forever, just on the old bass boat. And I understand how that can bring comfort to people because that's that image of that lost loved one doing what they like, and it brings some some level of comfort. But it's a worldly kind of comfort. Yeah. It's a fleeting kind of comfort because it's not real, and it's it only plays at the emotions. And the question for us is, does God's Word tell us what a, I mean, our primary discussion tonight, what is man like in glory? But B, what is the environment like in glory? You know, what, what is man doing? What is God doing? You know, these sorts of things the scriptures testify to. And because the scriptures reveal them, they are true. And we can look forward to them. You just don't have the comfort of golf on Saturn. Heaven is not Valhalla. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And and it's, and again, very important. It, it, it's different from any of the other conceptions of the afterlife in any religion or, again, in any imagination. Where do we want to turn towards then? Uh, where do we want to look at first when we're talking about what the Bible says about man in glory? Yeah, and the, I think one of the best places to kind of touch on the things we've already talked about here, there's a great passage in 1 John 3 that we can go to. We'll eventually get to Hopefully, people would associate the book of Revelation with this, this future glory, and especially the final couple of chapters of the Bible. But let me just read a section here from 1 John that I think touches on what we've already discussed. This is 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know, that's, that's a great passage. And John's point in that whole letter, of course, is to talk about being pure. And that's why he's emphasizing that, the, the uh, avoiding sin and to, to, to cleave to these things. But it is quite telling that, for one thing, we will be like him. Right. Right? So what does that mean, David? I mean, what does it mean that we're going to be like him, like Jesus when well, he I appears? I think the, he's connecting it with the status of that we should be called children of God, right? And so now you have that promised status. Um, we often talk about this as adoption. And so you, there's going to be a move from not just having that status 
how can I say it, by faith, but it will actually be by sight. This is where that distinction becomes really helpful of the third and the fourth condition of man. Without the power, when you no longer have the power to sin, then you will be perfect in the sense that Christ is perfect. Not that we become the son of God by nature, but we will be like him. I think John's emphasis there, as you mentioned, is on this purity. I don't know how much more we can say about that. Well, let me uh, let me add this little spin on it too. To see him as he is. There's another thing at play here too. To gaze upon God, especially for sinful man, to gaze upon God means what? Mm-hmm. Means his undoing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man Isaiah, can't do it. You know. Right. Yeah, Moses gazes at his back and he and his face glows. Yeah, in Isaiah, woe, I am undone. This is very much a reference to seeing Jesus fully. You do have the fullness of divinity and humanity in Jesus Christ in the incarnation by nature, but by what man sees, okay? So now we're going to see him fully, but we know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The only way that you can gaze upon God as he is, is to be pure and to be made different than what you were, which was sinful. Yeah, to do that Hebrews posting, you know, to have that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Yeah, this is, that's a great point, actually, Willie. I mean, to, uh, so like recognizes like, right? And so it's to recognize Christ as in all his fullness, you have to be first purified. Think of Isaiah with his vision in chapter six, woe is me for I am undone. And it's not until the angel brings the burning coal from the altar that he is actually able then to say, you know, here am I, send me. Even St. John the Apostle, when he writes Revelation, when he gazes upon, when he has his vision of Jesus, he's still very trepidatious. You know, he's still not able to really, to really look upon it simply because of, of the nature of his character, the nature of Jesus' character. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's very important. There's this righteousness and this completion of the new creation that's done in the last day, wherein we can look upon him for who he is. But we're pressing toward that now, the being able to do that. And purity and sanctity are part of knowing God, knowing the nature of God. And perhaps that's where sometimes we stumble in this discussion, because we tend to think of purity and sanctity as either unattainable goals, which in a worldly sense they are, but um, we tend to think of them as merely abstaining from some things and that's about it. You know, I don't do this, therefore I am pure. Or I avoid this, therefore I am pure. And there's so much more to it than that. And we, mm-hmm. we touched on a little bit, you know, in, in the previous discussions about this, but there's loving your neighbor in spite of himself, in spite of your own failings. There's carrying out your vocation as parent, as father. All sorts of things are wrapped up in what it means to emulate Christ and to be pure and to be holy. So it's it's a much more nuanced conversation than simply uh, avoiding bad habits. Sure. And maybe just to, to tie it into where we're going, when glory comes, when Christ returns and we have the resurrection, that holiness will finally be complete. It will be utterly and perfectly done. There's no, there'll be no more growth because uh, we will be like Jesus. We will be perfect in glory. So should we move on to Colossians? Yeah, we can tie in another passage here, chapter 3. You might hear my pages turn in here. That's okay. We just know that you've got a real live Bible there. I don't have it all in my head. 
<laughs> like Zelman does. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. All right. Let me give you this one. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Yeah, so much great stuff there in just a handful of verses. If you're not preaching on the epistles some, you know, your preaching might be a little bit deficient. You know, you've, got, you've really got to up <laughs> I mean, bring them in. You you can preach on the gospel, but bring these verses in. Use them when they pop up yeah. in the lectionary, please, because it's gold. Well, this this wasn't the Ascension epistle reading, but it works so so well with Ascension, you know, because Christ sitting at the right hand of God and so, you know, look look up towards that, which is our goal, which is Christ himself. I, I think it's just a glorious passage. But how do you want to break it down, well, David? I think if we, if we can just pull out this, the unity with Christ, I think that's what Paul is driving at. And, and so much of his epistles are trying to pull out the, the implications of what, it, what does it mean to be united with Christ? And here, you know, if we, if we look towards the future, what that means for our future condition, uh, it means that the glory that Christ has, we will share in it. And uh, I, I know that doesn't really put a lot of f- flesh on the bones there, but that's what's described here. And so then that has very practical implications that he goes into in the rest of chapter three. Uh, but for us, it's it's a reminder that now the glory is hidden, but it's, what would you say? It's hidden, but it's not absent, right? It's hidden but it's but it's still there. Yeah, it's hidden so far insofar as it's uh, secure in Christ. It's it's placed into Christ. And the Christian then must die so that he won't die. Yeah, isn't it interesting Christ who is your life? What does that mean? Well, you can think of other passages like uh, I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the son of God. Our life is not going to be full until were with Christ fully and and completely. Yeah, and so when he finally appears then, as the, the chapter says, that glory which we have will also be evident. It will no longer be a question of, you know, who is who really believes, who doesn't believe, you know, who's really a part of God, who isn't. It's going to be evident and clear and perfect because we will be just like Jesus. And all of creation will know. That's part of the great vindication in the ultimate day, mm-hmm. is that you will be shown to be one of Christ's, and the world will be made to acknowledge that, just as they acknowledge him. And indeed, they acknowledge that because they must bend the knee to Jesus. Yeah, and they, they will give testimony on that day to their shame, but to our glory for those who believe in yep. Christ. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org
This is A Word Fiddly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, and David Appled here talking about Man in Glory. So we were just finish, finishing up a discussion on anticipating the state of glory, but it not being fully known. We unpacked that a little bit. We talked about being like Christ or seeing Christ as he is. So then what would Jesus look like in his glory? Yeah, there's uh, two places that we could look to, or I don't know, there's more than two, but two that we'll highlight. Uh, You can see this during his state of humiliation. You can see it in the moment of the transfiguration, his face brighter than the sun, his clothing brighter than anyone on earth could, could ever clean it. And so you're seeing maybe not, we should maybe make a distinction here. It's not the glory of man. It's the, it's his divine glory that's breaking out, but it's, it's in his, because of the incarnation, it's shared in his human nature there. So that is obviously a very glorious image of what Christ will appear like and what we have to look forward to as well. Then the second place that we sh- that we should probably mention here is uh, in his resurrection or in the ascension. Let's stick with the ascension since that's most recent when we're recording this. You have the king going up to his throne. And so even though it, it, there aren't the same manifestations of glory as you had in the transfiguration, it's very obviously a glorious scene. Right. And let's not forget, too, in the ascension, you have the cloud. Yeah. I mean, an, an absolute reference to uh, the glory of God. Yes. Right. And, he, I, you know, I say there's not the same manifestations, but he's, he's going up. He's, <laughs> I, you don't right. have the light image that's coming in there, but you've got the cloud, like you said there, Willie, and, and he's, he's being taken up. So that's just a, you know, a brief overview of manifestations of Jesus' glory. Then what will man be like in glory? Does the Bible give us any indicators of what that's going to be like? Yeah, there's going to be a change. And the change is such, maybe we can put it this way, the change is organic right? So it's right now I've planted some stuff in my backyard. We'll see if it grows. Try to have a little bit of a garden and everything's still in a very early, in a very early stage. But the tomato plant, when it reaches its full glory is going to look a lot different than it did in the seed. But I'll be able to look back and say, this came from the seed. In 1 Corinthians 15, that's probably the best place uh, to look for this. You do have a description of the the glorified body man's body in the resurrection and it it is this it's it's compared with sowing a seed and seeing the plant that comes after it yeah do we just want to take a look at that then first corinthians 15 42 to 53 yeah, I'll, I'll read a section of it here i don't think we need to talk, talk about each of these things that's mentioned here a lot of it is repetition and there's definitely overlap, but we can, we can pull some stuff out of here. Paul writes, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And and I'll just pause there because again there's a lot of repetition in what comes next. But you can see the the emphasis on going from the lesser quite clearly to the greater. Okay, one really important point for man in glory though 
is that he is not raised only spiritually. So you exist in glory. You will exist. The believer will exist in heaven physically. It's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. It's going to talk about bearing the image of the man of the dust and also bear the image of the man in heaven. So you have this glory, you have this righteousness of Christ, but you're also a human being. Verse 52, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So you're raised with an imperishable physical body, body and soul. You are a human, and that's a very important thing. We aren't simply free from this world in the sense of we are detached from the physical world. That's not what goes on. A lot of our discussions of the afterlife or our discussions of heaven seem to indicate that a lot of even Christians believe that heaven is merely spiritual and that the new heavens and the new earth are ethereal, that they don't have physical things in them or physical elements. And that is an error and something that we want to avoid. The resurrection of the dead is very important in Christian theology. Something I try to emphasize uh, with funerals is that the the one who has died, yes, they are with Jesus, but they're waiting. They're waiting just like we're waiting because the fullness has not yet come. Yeah, they're anticipating in a, in a similar way to what we're anticipating, the resurrection of the body. So here's a speculative question. <laughs> it's the theme of the podcast. It's the theme of the podcast. Would you say that the, the one who has died and is now in heaven prior to the resurrection, um, which state would they be in? Whoosh. In Christ or in glory? Oh. Oh, in this fourfold distinction? Yeah. What do they have? They no longer have the power to sin in mm-hmm. heaven. Yeah, they're, they're definitely in the fourth yeah. state. Uh, once the okay. person is there, they're, they're not, there's not a chance they're going to stumble and fall. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, that's a good point. If they're in glory, but they're yet still waiting... Does glory encompass two different states? I mean, two different stages, as it were. Well, glory too. You know, we need to. We've been using glory in about three or four different ways too, and there are yet more ways in which we can use it. We're using glory here as a shorthand for that fourth state. Sure. You know, have they received the beatific vision? Does that I mean is that kind of the <laughs> the question too? Are they beholding the face of God? Well, I mean, yeah, we would say that they are beholding God. Like you know, they're with Christ. You know, the the soul has gone back to the one who created it. But we also are recognizing that there is still a yet more glorious day coming. Absolutely, yeah. When we will be reunited with our bodies in a way that we can't even imagine. How about this, Owen? Well, the fourfold distinction is especially looking at a person's will, the will of man, right? This power to sin or not to sin, that's oftentimes a question of your will. But the Bible speaks about more than just the will. And so connected with this, as we're looking at these biblical passages, you know, here we're talking about the the body and not necessarily, now the will is also going to be imperishable and incorruptible and all those things. But the Bible has more in view than just the state of your will. And so when we're, we're talking about a person being in heaven, but not yet being in the resurrection, yeah, there still is more glory for that person to come, even though they've already reached a penultimate glory, maybe. Right. And and so it's just a couple quick things, um, because this discussion here is going to go really well when we get to Revelation. Yeah. But 
for, for, for Paul, uh, the important things to take out of this are the imperishability of man in glory, his immortality, his incorruptibility, the glory that he has, which he receives from God, which is very, very important. So imperishability, immortality, incorruptibility, it's an unchanging glory that man will enter into. Here's a quick story. When I was on Vicarage, I remember there was a guy who was a good Lutheran. He had it pounded into his head that man was a sinner, right? And so because he was a sinner, he knew that it was wrong to have free will, or that's you know, kind of how he interpreted it. Okay. Um, and so he, he was, he came to me and he, you know, I was a vicar at, at the time. He asked me in heaven, is it going to be, uh, he, he didn't, he didn't get this incorruptible or this imperishable idea yet because he thought, well, even if we have free will in heaven, then we're going to, we're going to sin again. Right. And we're going to screw it all up again. And he was he was very concerned about this, and I can remember this this is what he needed to hear that no there won't be there won't be a temptation there there won't and there won't be another fall that comes after the resurrection right and it's important to remember that man is by nature sinful, but only because our nature has yes. been corrupted yes. uh, the creation has been corrupted that's not the intent we are sinful because we live post-fall, and we are born into it. But that is not the intent of God in creating man. Well, if, if that was the intent, then, you know, Christ himself would have to be a sinner, which is plainly blasphemy. Well, you know right? what I, what <laughs> I told the guy yeah. was, I said, you are committing the Flassian heresy. Did you really say that, David? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> and he got a C- minus yeah. on his victory. <laughs> But they gave me an A-plus afterwards. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, do we want to dig into a little bit? Yeah, let's take a – do we want to – let's jump into Revelation here since we are talking about – this is a good time to talk about the consciousness of those who have departed, who have fallen asleep in the Lord. Because it gives us – Revelation gives us an indicator of both, Mm -hmm. of what it will be like when we have been raised from the dead, but also a brief glimpse into what it's like for those – who are presently asleep in Christ. Yeah, and the way we often describe that goes back to Zellwin's question pretty well. It's an intermediate state, so it's not the final state. Yeah, and I think I think uh, Revelation can really put the nail in the coffin of an idea of, say, soul sleep, which is the idea that there is no consciousness yeah. until the last day. Some people would hold to that. Some people hold to even worse versions of that. But I don't think that that's a scriptural understanding, because you do seem to have a consciousness represented at least by the martyrs, for example, in Revelation. They're aware of their station. They're aware of the situation on earth, and they're calling out, how long, O Lord? Yeah. Now you can just say, well, it's just Revelation, and none of it makes any sense, and it's just merely poetic or apocalyptic, but that's that's an e- that's too easy of an out. You know, there does seem to be something something going on there in that intermediate state more than just simply being unconscious. Yeah, so uh, it's it is a great well it's a key passage in order to understand what what are these people doing now who are in heaven. And so you get descriptions like I'm not going to read it but you have they now serve God uh, day and night they are in his temple serving him. Maybe I should read it because I'm the hymns mix with the actual biblical verses <laughs> and sometimes for good but also sometimes it's uh, not so good. So how does it actually describe it? Revelation 7, they're, they're serving God day and night as priests in his 
in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter yeah. them with his presence. Yeah. You know, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst. There you have that incorruptible, imperishable. I, I keep saying incorruptible, but it's imperishable, right? There's there's no mm-hmm. lack for them. They don't need food. They're not hungry. They're not thirsty. They're not in pain. But then there's also a positive description there. They're they're doing something. Yeah, it's not merely passive. The, the existence in heaven is not merely passive. You are active in heaven. That shouldn't surprise us when we consider Eden. Work was part of the gig in Eden. It wasn't toil in the way we think of labor today, but there were things to be done and God was to be served and this is how it was to be done. Mm -hmm. And heaven is similar in that way. Now, we don't know the specifics. I mean, what what exactly that that looks like or what rubrics they're going to be using in the temple, for example. But clearly here, there is activity in heaven. Yeah, and there's the other visions describe obviously worship going on there. And so there is a, there's praise and adoration. There's the singing of various songs that's going on in heaven. But I don't think that it's limited only to what we would describe as worship. I think the whole life of the departed soul, however exactly that looks, is one of worship, even if it's not you know, singing a psalm. Yeah, and it's something that's going to be a little bit, well, it's very difficult for us to fathom too, not simply because of the glory of God, but because the economy of heaven is so different from what we understand here. You know, we are, we're very nuclear. We, we think about things in terms of marriage and the family and, and family worship, and then the church's family worshiping together. And yet you have these distinctions that are kind of done away with in glory. Now, that doesn't mean that we become androgynous beings. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm thinking about, like the angels, married, uh, neither married nor given in marriage. That, that's what I'm talking right. about here, right. not, not some weird stuff. Maybe it'd be easier to say that we are entering into the great Sabbath rest. And, be, and so the, the, the rhythms of, of the week, as it were, have passed away into the, the eternal Sabbath which we will be observing in heaven in glory. Yeah, and that's a very that's a very good way to put it. And it's a good word Sabbath and it's a good word rest. And yet just like in our in our Sabbaths today, we don't just sort of lay around and count how many feet we're allowed to walk <laughs> on a Sabbath, do we? No, we, we we are and God expects us to be active in worship on the Lord's day. The going back to Eden is helpful there. Eden before the fall, Adam is placed specifically to work and keep the garden. That's his, that's his job description. And so he's not just there to, you know, pluck fruit. You know, I'm sure that part of it would have been that he's going to tend the the trees and stuff, but I, I don't know. I envision him as actually having work to do with the, you know, the caveat that it's not toil. It's not work that drains him. So how is this going to look different then from other conceptions of glory? And for lack of a better word, other conceptions of heaven. Well, what do you mean? Can you Don't everybody on jump that in at once. <laughs> well, we, we, we had a brief reference to Valhalla in, in the intro. You know, we, we sort of talked about modern, modern notions of it, but it's a very different conception from a pagan understanding of glory because ultimately all of the glory in heaven is derived from the glory of God alone. Yeah, and he's in in these descriptions that you have in the book of Revelation, you know, you can't get more than a couple verses without some reference back to either God on his throne or the lamb who's right there. So everything is centered around Christ and around the the father. 
I don't know if that kind of gets at your question. You know, you're not going to go off on some, you're not going to go like for a hike and to get away from Jesus. Yeah. I just need, I just need to, I just need a break from yeah, church. Right. Jesus. Right. I'm just tired <laughs> of it's gone on too long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I need some, I need some me time. No, it doesn't happen that yeah. way. It's a, it's a, it's a remarkable thing. And yet what's probably most tragic is it's easy to find ourselves thinking, well, that doesn't look very appealing. And we're going to do that for eternity? I, I don't know. That sounds kind of boring. <laughs> which proves which state in, we currently yeah. live in. Yeah. This idea that we're going to be, you know, doing divine service setting three for eternity and we're thinking, oh boy, that doesn't sound like much fun. And yes, right. it, it, it does show that we are sinners, you know, that we are in this state, but we don't really fully grasp what it means to be in the presence of Jesus. Yeah, and we can't. And, that, and I think that's why, you know, we come up with these analogies that fail or we come up with these alternatives that fail. Heaven is some great brew pub or something like that. You know, that you know, just any, any silly story you want to make up there. Part of it's sinfulness, and the other part is we just don't understand it. Even the concept of time in heaven and in relation to God and existing in and outside of it is something that we can only speculate about because we don't understand it, which actually makes me think maybe we should do like a 19 part series on Thomas Aquinas sometimes, Elman, if you're feeling up to it. <laughs> um, I, think, I, think, I think the listeners would adore it. <laughs> Again, you know, we want to be careful too. We don't want to speak beyond what the scriptures say because we're not given to know a lot. And it's tempting to fill in those gaps with what we want yeah. rather than what oh, we even know. Even in these visions, so John has to see them somehow. Right. And so, you know, sometimes you get questions, well, like, do they have bodies in this vision that we're talking about in in Revelation 7? In order for John to see that, he must have seen some sort of bodily reality. But does that mean, then do you want to draw the conclusion that in heaven, we won't just be souls, but we'll also have some kind of body? I think that's probably going beyond scripture there, going beyond the intention of the book of Revelation. Well, I mean, there's certainly a recognizable form yeah. even at the Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. So apart from the body or apart from the resurrection of the body, there's still some identifiable form, whatever that looks yeah. like, at least in these cases. And I, But I think the most important part, at least for us and for when we're dealing with people counseling and grief and that sort of thing, is a, is a consciousness for those people in that intermediate state, too. And a consciousness for us in the end times, or I mean, in the last day, in glory, after the judgment, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth, we are aware of what's going on. Um, That's another common thing you hear, that those who have died in Christ are not aware of what's going on, because to be aware, they would feel awful or guilty. And And then you hear the same thing applied to the new heavens and the new earth. Well, to just know about all this bad stuff that happened, you know, would just make me feel bad. So surely I can't be conscious of everything and, and all of this this history in, in the last days. And well, again, that's thinking of it in a worldly manner. And it isn't as if God has the men in black thing and just wipes you. <laughs> Part of our understanding of what God has done for us is understanding what we were and what the world was and the curse, and the pain, and everything about sin that causes death, and destruction, and agony. And in glory, we will recall that, and we will praise God for delivering us from it, and for paying the wages of sin. Yeah. Yeah. How how would we be able to praise Him as our Savior if we didn't know what we were being saved from? 
And otherwise, then, we do become the robots or the automatons that the fedora-wearing members of internet atheism accuse us of being. To get at what you're saying again, Willie, with I think something that most people ask, if not out loud, um, they've asked themselves, why why are Jesus's wounds still in his risen body? And will Mm, they still be there when I get to heaven? Or will they still be there in the resurrection? I think the answer has to be yes. Right. They're not, it's not like they healed now. <laughs> it took 2,000 years, but finally the spear, the spear mark has healed over. Right now, <laughs> Enough Neosporin can yeah, fix it's anything. It's still going to be there as <laughs> what? As a, rem, not a reminder of, you know, guilt, but as a reminder of the victory and as a reminder of the price having been paid of his, and that's the mark of his love. Great. Well, on that note, we're going to take another break. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about the Old Testament a little bit for just a minute and then move on to uh, talk to people about this uh, practically. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. We'll be back in just a few moments. A word fitly spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all his fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and David Appled talking about man in the state of glory. We're going to back up just a little bit and talk about types of glory in the Old Testament for just a few minutes. Because it's important to understand when we talk about glory, what does that mean? What does that look like? Man in a state of glory, God's glory manifested, God's glory you know, present in heaven. The Old Testament really sheds a lot of light on this. So guys, if you want to take it away. Let me just, before we go into any particular examples, I think it's helpful again to go with the organic metaphor. So the Old Testament obviously foreshadows Christ and his kingdom in many and different ways, but you can't fully picture it until Christ actually comes. And then once he comes, he think about it in the resurrection. He opens their minds to understand uh, the scriptures and how they testified to him. So once that happens, then you can look back and say, oh yeah, here's you know this place or here's this prophecy or, or this type or whatever. And the same thing is true when we're thinking about glory. As you look back or as you, as you look ahead to the future glory and what that'll be like, we've talked about a lot, some of the unknown things and some of the known things, but as we try to get a uh, maybe a fuller picture here, or a fuller sketch, it's actually quite helpful to look back to the glory of Israel, although it was a temporary glory. I think that gives a lot of that that gives a fuller picture than what we have, even just if we just had the New Testament. Yeah. So you have first of all the glory of Israel under Joshua and what that looks like. That Israel has come out of slavery has come out of bondage and has been brought into the promised land. And Joshua as a book is unfailingly positive. (laughs) I mean, it's like 
everything's going great. They're winning battle after battle. They divide up the land. Everything's perfect. And Joshua is a leader just like Moses. Yeah. And everything's going great. Yeah. Well, they're finally in. They finally reached the land. Uh, they've attained at least some rest from their enemies. It's it's almost like their enemies are all but defeated, right? That's the impression that you get. There still remains some work to be done, but it uh, <laughs> it should be an easy task. That's what it seems to be in the book of Joshua. All, all I would add in there, I think that being in the land, being in the realm, in the promised land is key in the book of Joshua, because that's what Moses, Moses brought them out of Egypt. Moses led them through the wilderness. Moses brought them right up to the edge of the land, but he wasn't the one to bring them in. And so now the glory of Joshua is that he actually can bring them into that land. Yeah. And you also have I mean, just to tie it to the future glory than we have then, like Hebrew saying, you know, looking for a better country, right? Yeah. So, you know, this idea that we are moving towards our promised land in Jesus Christ and his glory. Yeah, where there, where there will be no more enemies, right? And where there every, where the, Satan will finally be crushed under our feet. Yeah, but then judges comes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and even Joshua, I mean, this is so this is one of the things to see in the Old Testament. This we're kind of what we're doing here a little bit is giving sort of hermeneutical guides, I guess, or, or things to look for. Every time you have this glorious picture of Israel, you're seeing sort of a foreshadowing of the glory of Christ and of the new creation, but it's always fleeting, right? What used to have glory no longer has any glory because the glory of the new has has overtaken it, but also because it was always just temporary. And then so during the time of the judges, then you have uh, the cycles of, you know, having it all together, but then falling away again until finally you have the coming of the kings. Yeah. Yeah. If, if we can just briefly touch on some of these things, you've got the gloss or not the gloss, sorry. You've got the progress from, okay, Joshua was a great leader, but he wasn't a king, right? And they were in the land, but they still had enemies, well, then you, you finally get the king and you've got the bad king of with Saul. I'm doing some real, <laughs> I'm, I'm painting with very broad strokes, okay? Bad king Saul, good king David. And then David's son comes along and Solomon is the glorious king, right? I mean, there's first Kings goes into great detail about the wealth and the all kinds of the, the good things that happened under King Solomon. Yeah, and it's interesting too because... As early as Joshua, you have the promise that the, the that the land will be, you know, this this gigantic stretch of land, you know, from the mess from the uh, from the river down to Egypt, bigger than any king actually ruled. But Solomon comes the closest in ruling that that whole promised area, and so you do have the height of that glory, the height of the the monarchy in. Solomon before it goes down again. Uh, well, just just let me just highlight a couple things, uh, the glory under Solomon and how that foreshadows the glory of Christ. Uh, you have David's son, okay? You've got the extension of the kingdom throughout, you know, this land, but also then his fame goes out into all the earth and you've got the wealth of the nations being brought into being brought and placed at Solomon's feet, right? And most notably that's with the Queen of Sheba who brings all kinds of all kinds of goods up from her land and gives them to Solomon and he gives her uh, wisdom. I don't know exact can't remember exactly what he says to her if that's even recorded. 
But you also have one of the things I love about the description of Solomon's kingdom is you have these these great passages that describe how everyone was doing this job or that job. And so you get this hierarchical description and everyone has their place in the kingdom. Man, that sounded like a terrible children's song, doesn't it? Uh, but it, but it's a great it's, it's actually a glorious picture, right? Where every person is subject to the king and is fitting into the king's rule. And isn't it fitting too then that the highlight of Solomon's reign is the building of the temple? Absolutely, right. right. And so you could also tie that to well, like we were saying, the work that we have in heaven, the work of worshiping the work of praising, of giving glory to God in eternity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, but again, Solomon has <laughs> very short-lived glory because along with this temple, then he has his many wives and he builds them. I don't think he builds them temples, but he they're they're allowed to worship their gods. I don't. Does he build them shrines? I'm forgetting now. I think he builds them high places. Okay. If I remember right, yeah. Willie, do you want to chip in on that? Well, it's not something you want to do. You know, don't even let him bring him in the house. Um, <laughs> you know, just keep, keep that. Yeah. Keep it outside. Keep that out. Keep it outside. There's a lesson here, folks. Marry within your faith or your kingdom will come crashing down yeah. around you. Yeah. Well, that is true. Yes. And then his sons, you can see this, like Willie said, the, the kingdom falls apart under Solomon's son. Rehoboam destroys yeah. it all. Right. But even in this type then, so you got these types, this raising up, the crashing down, then we come to a vision of permanent glory with the prophet Jeremiah. So, and this is common to all the prophets, I think I'll, I'll, that's a broad stroke, but the the hope for and the vision of a permanent glory and the, a glory that won't pass away comes to the fore in the prophets. And the, the passage that Willie mentioned there, the Maybe the the one that's quoted most in the New Testament is where the Lord promises what a new, I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with your fathers. And the difference being it's, it's going to be unbreakable. So there's that permanence. I will forgive their sins, right? Not that he hadn't forgiven sins before, but now sins will be completely forgiven and sent away. And my law will be written into their hearts. And no one will have to teach another saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Yeah, yeah, everyone will know. And that's very important, especially for that covenantal community, because we understand, even us, you know, in the new covenant, we understand a little bit what it's like to be faithful in a time where there is apostasy within the church or a mass falling away. So for the people of the Old Testament, it's very similar. Often there's a faithful remnant and then a wicked mass, and they have to live as a part of that. Now they're saying, no, in the new covenant, it's going to be different. Everybody is going to be confessing the same. Everybody is going to be united in the faith. Everybody in this new covenant will know the Lord. And this is the new and everlasting covenant. Yeah, under an everlasting king who will reign over an everlasting kingdom uh, in which we will all have our place and we will all be doing all things to his glory forever. And there will be no more crying or pain or suffering or any of those things. It's glorious, so, man. It's glorious. See, read the Old Testament. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you got to do it. It's really good. Highly recommended. So 10 we, out of 10. we've already advocated to preach on the epistle. Are you saying we should preach also on the Old Testament, Willie? 
Well, I'm supposed to mutter something about no Old Testament readings and the corruptions okay. of Vatican II yeah. or something uh, like that. But uh, obligatory, yeah, you know, maybe mention. thank you. <laughs> obligatory right. mumble mumble. Right, yeah. every, just every once in a while, maybe maybe preach on it, <laughs> <laughs> like our Lord did. <laughs> All right. So, so that's the Old Testament then. So let's move on then, and let's just sort of wrap this up a little bit. Do you guys think there's any practical value to discussing this fourfold distinction? This centuries-old paradigm. So one one of the things that comes out in as we're talking a, a lot about pastoral theology in some of the other podcasts is the the necessity to understand people, right? If you don't understand how people think and how they work, you're going to have a really hard time ministering to them. And so, just as pastors, to be able to have the this distinction, especially that second and third state, you know, in Adam. And then in Christ, that becomes invaluable because as you're as you're talking with people who do not believe in Christ, or as you're talking to your own members who are regenerate and have uh, you know this new man living in them, that that becomes, I think, tremendously helpful in thinking how you're speaking to them and encouraging them. Yeah, if nothing else, when you're dealing with the regenerate state, the third state especially, and ministering to the people within that, it's it's helpful to remember that. You are speaking to people who have been delivered from the bondage of sin, right? So when when we are dealing with that state, we don't want to treat them like they're still, you know, enslaved to sin, but rather that they are a new creation. And the way that we interact with people who are a new creation in Christ is going to be very different. And understanding what that means is is one thing that this helps us do. Right. And this is often caricatured. You know, it's it's often portrayed as, well, you're a Christian now, so you better shape up and uh, you better start doing this because that's your your obligation now. And that's your sum and substance. We got to get these things checked off, you know, so in, in the good Christian handbook. And that's not it at all. We sort of downplay the idea that there is comfort in the fact that you have been born again. You are comforted in the fact that you are justified for the sake of the merits of Jesus Christ. But you're also comforted by the fact that he does even more that he has made you new, that he has given you this new nature, this new heart, this new will. And that is a comfort. Now, it fails and don't trust in your will, but trust in what God has given you and the promise that he's given you. I think there's potential for comfort there for some people, the people who are struggling or the people who think that they can do nothing but sin or are doubting what God has done. We're not talking about measuring good works here per se. We're simply talking about acknowledging the gift God has given you in a new life, yeah. a new will. Yeah, we should be excited to be Christians, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, we don't want to be those who to turn back and, and hunger for, for the old days. You know, when I didn't have this, you know, this obligation to God hanging around my neck, I could just live any way I wanted to. We, we shouldn't be doing that. In the old Adam, it happens. It certainly happens. But the new man doesn't look back. I think a lot of times what the wisdom of these sobriety groups is, is to help people remember to be thankful for just being sober. If that goes away, if there's no longer a thankfulness for sobriety, then that's usually an indication of, you know, this person is at least in danger of falling back into an old, into an old trap, whatever the addiction might be. You know, to what degree is it appropriate for a Christian, for a regenerate being 
to delight in serving the Lord or to delight in doing good works. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. (laughs) Oh, look at you. Proof texting again. (laughs) And I'm just doing it off the first part. But yeah, so Psalm 1, I mean, very clearly tells us that, you know, we delight in the law. We delight to walk in the way of the Lord because it is our joy. Psalm 19, of course, is a glorious one, too where you have the law of the Lord described as being, what, sweeter than honey? Is Do I have that right? Yeah, mm-hmm. right, you got it. Yeah, so I mean, just, just the delight that we have as as believers. And there's no shame in that. And yet, we're often taught, no, 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 we don't need to think about this. We don't need to think about, we don't need to be conscious of serving or, or trying to please God because we're just going to fail. Now, is it true? Yeah, you're going to stumble and fall. But is it wrong then to intentionally seek to please the Lord? Well, if it's, yeah, if it's wrong, then the, the state of glory is going to be a terrible place, right? Because that's all, like we were saying before, that is what takes up your time in heaven and in the, in the resurrection will be the service of God day and night. You won't go off duty, right? The, in the priests in the Old Testament, they had prescribed times when they were on duty that you're going to always be on duty. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there, there you have it as far as that goes. Um, any, other, any other thoughts about this? I mean, what does it say then? to modern-day materialism, for example. Our hope is in the that which does not perish. Our hope is in the things of God. And yet, often, we have those who hope or who glory in the things of the earth. Yeah, I think it helps to, it, when you have this distinction, not just in mind, but when you do delight in the Lord, the things Jesus says about mammon and serving two masters and, you know, storing up treasures in heaven where moth can't corrode and where thieves can't steal those things away that reorients your pleasures or your, or should at least cause you to say, you know, what, what do I desire and and what am I pursuing? Am I pursuing things that are going to fade away? Am I investing all of my time and all of my energy in something that's not going to last or do I have my delights centered on on the things of God? Right. And I think you have to have, like you say, you have to have your desires oriented correctly and a right understanding of our state as Christians before, let's say, charity can even begin to take hold. One of the great impediments to charity is simply not wanting to lack or not wanting to do without or to give mm-hmm. something up. But if we can become detached from that a little bit, then charity can flow forth, for example. And same thing with suffering, right? So often bearing your cross is so difficult because you're you're feeling that lack, right? I don't have this thing, whatever it might be. And it's re- it's a real yeah. lack. It's a real suffering. But when you when you can hold that up with the future glory, then you can say like St. Paul does, I don't consider the sufferings of this world even worth comparing the the future glory. All right. Very well. Thank you very much, Reverend Apple, for this series. That's going to be the last episode there. If you have any questions or anything, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or check us out at Twitter at wordfitly. And do you guys want to talk about the new wordfitly discussion group on Facebook? Yeah, we started a discussion group called Word Fitly Posting. You can find a link to it through the Word Fitly Spoken page. That's going to be a place for a free discussion about anything that we've talked about here on the episode or any articles that we've written. Certainly welcome to join in and participate in that discussion. 
Great. Thanks so much, guys. I'm Willie Grills with Zell and Heidi and Reverend David Apple. God love you and God bless.